0: Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Nuggets News. Today, we welcome a special guest. Uh, most of you will know him as Pomp's partner, uh, and that is Mark Yusko from Morgan Creek Capital Management. You've got a long title and plenty of positions, Mark, so I might let you introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, the, the, the short version is easy. So I'm um, the founder and uh, CEO and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. Uh, we also created a subsidiary, Morgan Creek Digital Assets, so we're a registered investment advisor in the States, uh, here in North Carolina, offices in New York, a small office in Shanghai. Uh, we focus primarily on alternative investments historically. And in the last couple of years, have spent a lot of time around the blockchain and crypto areas and have launched a couple dedicated venture funds. Yeah. So that's so- probably how we came together.
0: So what's the, I guess, the, the short history of how you got into investing? And as you said, the alternate investment space, yeah. what did that look like before crypto? Was that still a lot of the tech stocks and whatnot?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, the, again, the quick version, although I would say I don't do quick very well or short very well, but the quickest version is, um, you know, I, I didn't intend actually to get into investing. I went to, to school to be an architect, uh, didn't like that much, uh, graduated pre-med, decided not to go to med school. Went to business school, went to work for an insurance company, uh, was managing bonds because that was that's what insurance companies do. Uh, then I went to work for an equity firm. And then I had kind of the aha moment where I got contacted by my alma mater at Notre Dame to go back and work in their endowment. And what I learned very quickly was I thought investing was all about stocks and bonds. You know, which stock do you pick? Which bond do you pick? What I realized is investing is really all about what asset class are you in. If you're in the best asset classes, particularly asset classes around innovation, venture capital, technology, that's where the big returns come from. And if you look historically at the best performing funds, you know, the Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Harvard, Notre Dame, UNC, what what gave us that great performance was these overweights to early stage venture capital around technology, innovation, waves, and trends. And again, the really big aha moment for me and kind of what, what pushed us into to forming Morgan Creek was back in the early 90s, we had invested in this venture capital firm called Sequoia, very famous now, wasn't famous then. And this guy, Michael Moritz, decided to do a deal called Google, which at the time sounded like a kind of silly idea. Um, number twenty-one search engine. I personally liked web crawler better, but uh, Google turned out to be a pretty good investment. And you know, we turned half a million dollars into a couple hundred million dollars. I would say there should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad, <laughs> yep. and that led to leaving UNC or leaving Notre Dame to come down here to Carolina to run North Carolina's endowment. We spruce that endowment up from traditional stocks and bonds to include venture capital and hedge funds and private. And that term alternative investments, I mean, I use it, but I don't really like it because whoever thought of it, Alex, was not a marketing genius, right? People don't like alternative stuff, alternative medicine, alternative music, alternative energy. They like traditional stuff. And traditional stuff is stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. That's really what investing is all about. And yet hedge funds and private equity, venture capital, these things were all viewed as alternative. And I thought they should be integrated into a portfolio. Mm. So we left UNC back 15 years ago in 2004 to bring that endowment model of investing or that alternative thinking about investing to other investors. So we have over the years done uh, private investment fund of funds we 've done co investments we 've done venture capital investments, hedge funds, energy, natural resources, uh, distressed debt, anything that would lower the overall risk of a portfolio by being uncorrelated hmm. by having a a return stream that really wasn 't uh, impacted by the same factors as traditional stocks and bonds and that's that 's how we ended up kind of six years ago going a little bit down the rabbit hole into crypto and and what led to a very deep dive over the last couple of years and and actually ending up where we are today
0: yeah there's a couple of things i'd love to unpack there so the first one would be around your strategy what i tell people is these assets are so risky like all startups. And you've got to think of it like planting seeds. Do as much research as you can. Have these yep. small exposures because if you're picking right in this sector, they're going to grow 10 or 100x. And hopefully yes. that outweighs the number of losers that you're inevitably going to have. So would you agree with that general approach?
1: Yeah. So if you think about it, you know what separates the very, very best investors, the Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Notre Dame, Duke, et cetera, UNC, is they have this big weighting to venture capital. And venture capital is this focus on innovation. And to your point, it really is about planting seeds because you don't know at the beginning of a technological evolution which company is going to be the best, right? We had no idea Google was going to be the winner. Mm. Um, And plenty of the investments we made during the internet boom went to zero. In fact, if, if you do... Innovation investing, you know, early stage venture venture um, investing, and you don't have zeros, you're doing it wrong, hmm. right? Yeah. You're not taking enough risk because, to your point, then you won't have the ten bagger, the hundred bagger that will give you the the big upside. So, uh, if you think about exactly as you described this this planting of seeds, the way venture capital works is is you've got a power law. You're going to have, you know, if you do 10 investments, you're going to have three or four that literally go to zero. You're going to have three or four that, you know, you kind of get your money back or maybe make a little bit. But then you're going to have one or two that are just monsters. And the biggest challenge for all of us is not to pull our flowers too soon, mm. right? Not to sell those winners too soon. And that's one of the nice things about private investing is you can't sell, right? There's, there's no market. Um, I'll give you a great example recently. So we made an investment in Beyond Meat five years ago. (laughs) Uh and you know, we were in literally first day, first round, and put in three million bucks and fast forward that thing goes public at twenty-five. I would have sold day one. I would have sold absolutely on day one. That would have been a mistake because Mm -hmm. you know, over the next couple months, we were locked up for six months. It went to two hundred and forty dollars yeah an unbelievable valuation now we were still locked up, so then it crashed from two hundred forty down to eighty. but we got out at eighty and we made forty five times our money. We turned you know three million dollars into one hundred and fifty million dollars hmm. and that's pretty amazing so but I was protected from myself in that at twenty five dollars that stock was expensive yeah. at eighty dollars. It's ridiculous. At $240, it was just downright stupid. And uh, you know, here at 80 bucks, I still think it could fall 90% and still be expensive. Now, great business, great long term. They'll grow into something huge. But, but valuations in the public markets get to these extremes, and it becomes very hard to uh, keep your discipline.
0: Yeah, that was actually one that we covered on the channel at around $200 and it was too expensive to short. There wasn't enough stock to borrow, right, but uh, right. I definitely agree with you there. That's one of the things that doesn't get spoken about enough in crypto. I think with a lot of first-time investors, the fact that they're asking what's going on, where's my money, why am I rich six months, 12 months down the track, it's very common to be locked yep. up for years, as you say, in this early investment space.
1: Well, what's really important about crypto, and it's, and it's, it's funny, you know, we're, we're dealing with a new you know, technological evolution. and We're dealing with new n- nomenclature. And part of the challenge is everything called the same, even though it's not. right. Yeah. There are really only about a dozen cryptocurrencies. Yes. And what I mean by a cryptocurrency is a cryptographically secure currency that is either a storage value or a medium of exchange. Yeah. There's about a dozen. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, Dash, go down the list. Then there's all these other things that are called cryptocurrencies but they're not cryptocurrency they are cryptographically secure but they are not currencies they are utility tokens they are they don't have a share of equity they don't have a share of debt they don't have a share of cash flow they're literally like a chuck-e-cheese token that'll let you play games on someone's network and all they really are are crowdsourced venture capital deals but not even early stage deals where some of the risk has been taken out these are pre-seed stage or seed stage deals So 95% of those projects are going to go to zero. Let me say that again. 95% are going to go to zero. And that's normal, right? 95% of pre-seed and seed stage venture capital goes to zero. Now, the 5% that doesn't, as you said, 10 baggers, 20 baggers, 50 baggers, 100 baggers, they can be monster home runs. The challenge is that's a very different business, right? Investing in... Technology venture capital is an incredibly different business Mm. than speculating in liquid currency. Totally different skill sets, totally different businesses, but they get conflated. Then you've got security tokens, which are just starting to emerge. Again, totally different asset. Ultimately, I think every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity will be digitized, will be tokenized, and will trade everything in the world, right? Every business, every piece of real estate, every Stock every bond will trade twenty four seven. You and I will be able to own fractional shares of things like you know I could go you know short uh, Melbourne and long you know Sydney if I wanted to. or I could go long Soho and short Midtown. Can't do that today, but ultimately when we tokenize and fractionalize ownership, we will be able to. So that's a long answer to a, a simple question, which is, crypto is used in so many ways to describe so many things but really you have to focus on am i buying digital gold bitcoin as a store of value
2: yeah
1: am i buying ethereum you know the www dot of the internet of value Mm. which is a a protocol layer a a functional layer just like http or smtp or ftp in the internet and or am i speculating on you know search engine number two hundred and twenty one Which isn't going to be Google, which went to zero, um, just like WebCrawler, and uh, you know, or or my favorite is you know projects that are too early. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have it in Australia, but in the U.S. we have this thing called Chewy.com, and Chewy.com is basically pet food delivered to your door. Well, that was (laughs) Pets.com, which everybody points at as the big failure of the internet. Well, it's the same business. Twenty years later, we just now we have enough, but, you know, uh, broadband bandwidth. We have enough, you know, delivery mechanisms, and now it's it's an okay idea. But you know, Pets. dot com was the same idea.
0: Hundred percent. It's, it's so great to hear you say a lot of this. It's what we've been preaching from day one about Bitcoin being the blue chip cornerstone of your portfolio. And I think Ethereum and some of the other platforms and protocols yep. are their own concept of decentralizing Web 3.0. And then yep. I've got about two dozen um, individual projects in individual industries. But again, they're tiny percentages because it's so risky. And I think that's where people get, go wrong a lot of the time. They're very, very heavy in these alts and they, they don't have any Bitcoin. And I think that's kind of the most important part of the mission, really.
1: Well, to your point, right, it, it's all about position sizing. You know, there's, there's no risk that's bad to take, right? I mean, risk is, is how you make money in investing, right? If you have no risk, you make no return,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? I can put my money in the risk-free rate and I will make the same number as inflation, and then my wealth will be chewed up by that inflation. I will make no return. So I can guarantee myself not to lose money by taking no risk. But as an investor, our job is to take risk. And we have to take one of four risks. We can either take credit risk, we can buy a bond. And a bond is a contractual claim, right? If I loan you money, you don't pay me back, I can sue you. And I have to get paid. But you don't get paid much for that. You get 2% above risk-free. So mm. bonds are kind of a stinky investment, particularly for young people. Mm. Not bad, and you need the cash. But then you can take equity risk. And equity risk, right, that's pretty risky because bondholders have to get paid back. Equity holders don't. You know, there's Tesla all the time, right? The equity of Tesla is probably worthless. It mm. doesn't mean it is necessarily. It doesn't mean the product's bad. It doesn't mean the idea is bad. But they have so much debt. The bondholders need paid. They're not going to generate any cash flow because they sell cars at a loss. So technically, the equity is probably worthless. Mm. But if it isn't, it could go up a lot in value. Actually, it already has. Yeah. Um, I think it's dead money for a long time. It probably goes to zero. But then you can take illiquidity risk, right? And that's just private equity, venture capital, private real estate. Yeah. You know, it's like the difference between buying a REIT stock and a piece of real estate. I always tell people, you know, what's your house worth? They're like, oh, you know, it's worth $300,000. Okay, you gotta sell it by noon tomorrow. Yeah. Now what's it worth?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, I could never do that. Sure you could. I'll give you 50 cents on the dollar right now, cash. Oh no, 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 that's not fair. I'm like, well, I said you gotta sell it by noon tomorrow. So liquidity risk is a real risk that you can take advantage of if you have patient capital, if you don't need the money right away. Then the fourth risk is just leverage or or structure.
2: Hmm.
1: But to your point about alts, look, there's nothing wrong with taking a small position in a very, very risky thing where the outcome is it could go to zero. In fact, it's likely to go to zero, but you need to have enough understanding of the tech and enough understanding of, of the potential outcome and the potential upside that could counteract the risk of 95% chance of going to zero. The mm. problem is most people are just chasing lines on a chart. Right? They see something move. You know, we're hunter-gatherers, you know, us guys anyway. We're hunter-gatherers and we see movement and we we follow movement. And um, it's actually why women are better investors than men because they they don't overtrade. They're not overconfident. They actually trade what they know.
0: Yes.
1: Um, But I do think this idea that alts are bad is just wrong. Hmm. Alts are not bad. Alts are technology. They're early-stage venture. They're seed-stage venture and pre-seed-stage venture. Therefore, they have high levels of risk. So, size them appropriately, risk manage them appropriately.
0: Yeah. So, I guess, well, let's talk about alts. And I know maximalism really frustrates me, particularly as someone that was early on in the community and we were going against yeah. the grain and trying new things as the Bitcoin community. And now there's other projects that are doing the same thing and it's become this you know, real tribalism. But you know, what's your thoughts on altcoins? Because I very much think we're seeing the infrastructure be built out, whether it's grayscale or whatnot, for big money to flow into the top 10 or so Because of the liquidity, as you say, the regulatory certainty, there's so many reasons why that money is going to flow into those large caps to seek a bit of, you know, a mixed portfolio.
1: Well, and, and again, that that's how that's how markets work, right? Look at look at every market. Large caps get the vast majority of the money, but the biggest returns are made by people who exploit the micro caps and the small caps, who have an understanding of the earliest stage. I'll give you a great example. So you know, years and years ago, we used to invest with this firm called Nicholas Applegate. And they were very good growth managers. And they had a large cap fund, a mid cap fund, a small cap fund, and a micro cap fund. And we were early money in both their micro cap and small cap fund. And so as they gathered assets, they started holding stocks longer. And I've actually gotten a, like an argument, like a, a vicious argument with their portfolio manager saying, you know, Jack, what are you doing? I don't need you to hold this 2 billion dollar company because you think it could go to 4 billion. That's a 1x. I, I'm not interested in that, right? Or 2x. I mean I'm not interested in that. I want you to go find that 100 million dollar company that can become a billion dollar company because that's a 10x and you're actually really good at that. Mm. And so, you know, cap waiting is is fine and the infrastructure to help the big money come in and own you know the blue chip stores of value in the medium exchange. That's fine, but alts is a whole nother game. And and what's cool about it right now is again you're talking about the earliest of of venture capital ideas. So therefore, you do have to have some technological savvy. You have to be able to understand the projects they're working on. Um, I do think, unfortunately, it's also like you know Canadian penny stocks or or. American penny stocks—you know that's where the scammers go too. So, mm. and that's been true of money for thousands of years, right? There've been snake oil salesmen and scammers, and it's not new to crypto. And you know, people just got to get over themselves about that. Mm. Um, so, you do have to be careful, and uh, you know, just like phishing on your email, right? Don't don't ever give anybody your you know bank account number. That that's just stupid. Yeah. But um, you probably don't want to invest in something from a guy who, who's been to jail. You know, that's just pretty good rule. Um, but there are a lot of people that do. Yeah. And uh, I was watching a documentary the other day about uh, a guy who's done three, not crypto scams, but stock scams. Uh, because there's a thing in the U.S. where the Russell indices rebalance the last day of May. So May 31st. And so what people do is they, they print up these fake reports for their companies to get their price to move a lot in May. And then they get included in the index, and everybody has to buy them, and they just sell. They just feed the ducks. Hmm. Totally illegal, totally immoral, totally. But it works really well for the scammers until they get caught. So um, back to your question about alts. I think alts are like spice, right? If you have a meal and you put a little spice in, it's awesome. It's great. gives you flavor, enhances the meal. Put a little in, a little more because you you know you like hot food or whatever, okay, fine. But if you you know you open the jar too wide and you spill the whole bottle in, yuck, you ruin everything. Mm. And I think the same thing's true with risk, right? If you put small amounts of risky projects in your portfolio and you understand that you're likely to lose everything nine out of ten times, mm. and you don't get upset about it, and you don't wallow in self-pity about it, then you're fine. Yeah. But if you put all of your eggs in one basket and, and then get into that. Oh, I'm just praying that it goes back up. Look, anytime prayer enters investing, you're in bad, you're in bad shape. It's bad.
0: So yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the main, the Bitcoin thesis. What are you saying to clients? And obviously you start there before you're trying to push them into the spicy alt world, as you just spoke about, but how are those conversations going? Is the interest picking up or are you a little bit delusional as we with you know thinking that all this big money's coming and it's <laughs> yeah. still a long way away or how are those conversations yeah.
1: going? Yeah I, I I definitely have been have been uh, referred to as delusional here. Look I I came out of the endowment world, you know, as a button-up kind of guy I wore a suit and tie every day and and uh, my my hair's white so I'm old enough to to have been through a few things and you know now suddenly I'm out there talking about Bitcoin and and literally you know, people's jaw drops on CNBC the first time I said it. They're like, well, what are you talking about? That's, that's for scammers. That's for, you know, crazy people. I said, well, look, let's just talk about this. First, you got to think about what is, what is Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is, is a use case of a fundamental technology called blockchain that is a proof of concept around a technological evolution that I think has been going on for 60 plus years, almost 70 years. So you go back to 1954, and we invented this thing called the mainframe. And 14 years later, uh, we invented this thing called the microchip, so smaller computers. And uh, then 14 years later, and I don't know why it's always 14 years. I have a thesis on that. I think it has to be with the creative class, and young people are the ones that invent stuff. But it's about half a generation. So 14 years later, we, we invent this thing called the personal computer. There's the famous thing that Steve Ballmer's mom said, honey, don't go to work for that company. No one ever put a computer in their house. He has 18 billion reasons why he was right. Mom was wrong. Mm-hmm. Then in 1996, this thing called the internet. And you know, Krugman said it would never be more important than a fax machine. Yeah, arguably, it's a little more important than a fax machine. Yeah. Then in, to, in 2010, you have this thing called the mobile net where we all walk around with these supercomputers in our hand. We call them phones, but no one talks on them anymore. Mm. And now in 2024, we're going to have what I call the trust net, which is the internet of value or the internet of money. And it's going to be powered by blockchain. So uh, just like, you know, we had early use cases for the internet, like Yahoo uh, and then Google and and then eBay. Uh, we've got early use case, uh, which is Bitcoin for for blockchain, and you know, you know, and your you, and your listeners know, and watchers know that you know, blockchain is a pretty simple technology, distributed ledger technology. It allows us to, for the first time, deal with this double spend problem that's created as we move from the analog age to the digital age. Yeah. Right? When I go from the analog world to the digital world, and I digitize something, uh, if I digitize a song, right, and I want to share the song with you, if I send you a copy. You don't really care, right? The copy plays just as well as the original. You don't care if you have the original. Now, the music industry cares that I sent you a copy because they would like you to buy your own copy. But you don't really care. And we both get to enjoy the music. Now, if I have a dollar and I make a copy of it and I send it to you, now I've committed fraud. You're a money launderer. We're both going to jail. It's bad stuff. So let's not do that. So Satoshi, whoever he, she, they are, came up with this genius idea to take this triple entry ledger accounting and allow us to solve the double spend problem of digital money. And so, you know, start off as this peer to peer electronic cash system. And then people realize that when you when you form technological innovation, you have to choose, right? You can either be fast or secure like Visa. Not very secure, really, really fast i 've had to change my visa number three times in the past you know two years. Not pleasant, not the end of the world. They pay the seven hundred bucks the guy was you know charging they 're getting smart right They used to charge you a thousand dollars at one time and you 'd catch him right away i didn 't catch this last guy for about almost a year because he was doing fifteen dollars here, twenty dollars there, fifteen dollars there, mm. and uh, you know I travel a lot, so i just didn 't notice yeah. but um Visa gets hacked a lot because it's not as secure, but it's also very, very fast. Mm. And it operates on top of the internet protocol. So when the internet was being developed, you know, there were lots of protocols. We ended up with five. We got TCPIP, we got HMTP, we got SMTP, we got FTP, we got WWW. And that's what drives the internet. Today, I believe the case for Bitcoin is twofold. One, it's digital gold. I think it's a superior form of store of value relative to gold. I think gold still has a role in a portfolio because it's physical and you can take it with you. But Bitcoin's far superior. It's more portable. It's more divisible. It's more secure. It doesn't cost as much to store. Lots of superiority. So I think that's one use case. But the real thing for me is I think it becomes the settlement layer for Web 3.0. And I think you build up the stack of protocols whether it's Bitcoin, Filecoin, Polkadot, Cosmos, whatever they happen to be, I think all these things are going to stack in a protocol layer. And for the first time, right, the inventors and owners of the protocol are going to make a lot of money. Mm. Right? Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet, wrote the first web page 30 years ago last week. Okay? Not a rich man. He figured out how to use TCPIP to change the world. Not a rich guy. Who got rich? Zuckerberg. Why did Zuckerberg get rich? Because he gave us all a free thing by the way, free is never free, and people used it, and they gave up their data, and he monetized it. Now, even more crazy than that is a lot of people, including myself, paid money to ancestry.com or you know one two or 23 and me to give your genetic data away. you paid to have them take it, and then mm. they sold it to the drug companies for thousands of dollars.
2: Mm.
1: Genius, we're geniuses, not really. So you got this whole Mechanism that allows now, for the first time, through decentralization, the ability for people to capture that value, yeah. right by owning the protocols. So that that's my, my case for Bitcoin is look, I I think it's going to be a gold equivalent someday. I've even got a Bitcoin gold equivalent tie that I got from Eck, gold on one side, uh, Bitcoin on the other, on a, a Libra scales, yeah. and uh, that's about seven point four trillion dollars of market cap. That's a big number for. Uh, individual Bitcoin. But I think it'd be bigger than that. I think it could be part of the global currency reserve system as we migrate from the dollar being hegemonic reserve to a digital Rem and B, which is probably coming probably in the next three or four months. And then ultimately is Bitcoin as part of that. Um,
0: Yeah, for sure. It's funny you use that uh, genetic example. So I'm from a pharmacy background and uh, that was one project we invested in. And maybe it's one of the seeds that isn't going so well at the moment. Um, But yeah, I think there's all these use cases, as you say, where giving people back their data and they're going to accrue the value yep. the other example i always laugh at is when guests talk about the fax machine because the pharmacies are the only industry that still use fax machines regularly uh
1: no there's one other it's crazy the investment business still does i just I just made an investment in a uh iron ore mine of all things and i literally had to fax my documents <laughs> which is crazy Anyway, I don't even know where a fax machine is. My, my secretary had to do it.
0: It could so. be an Australian company. But uh, what, what, are the, <laughs> what are the biggest drivers for you for, for Bitcoin? I believe it's going to suck up market cap off all these fiat currencies. And it doesn't have to replace the US dollar or the Aussie dollar. It's all those 100 right. right. currencies in between with huge market caps. Is it the negative rates? Is it you know, the Fed doing this backflip? What is the, the big thesis that you're selling people of why the price is going to continue to grow over time?
1: Look, I'm a big believer that, that um, most things that are great long-term investments are just really simple. Um, and networks are actually really, really simple. You know, when you had one iPhone, not very valuable. Mm. Two, not very valuable. 10,000, eh, getting better. Yeah. 10 billion, right there, are 10 billion iPhones on the planet today. Really valuable network. Um, Cisco Systems, when they were building out the internet, right? As every company had to buy switches from Cisco, really valuable. Now they've lost their lead to Huawei, which is why the whole hubbub over Huawei, because 10 years ago, the U.S. and China had to decide who's going to be the best at what. And we in the U.S. decided to be the best at social media. We're awesome at Facebook. We're awesome at Netflix. We're awesome at Google Mm. and, you know, Instagram. And China decided they're going to be best at AI and 5G, Eh, it's just probably more valuable going forward. So, so networks are really, really valuable. And if you think about a network, so Bitcoin is a network. So the way you, you value a network is using Metcalf's law and it's related to the number of users of the network and the level of activity in the network. And, and so we can model that out. But then the price of the protocol is going to reflect human beings, right? That get greedy and fearful. And so it's going to be over. The value a lot of the time, and under the value a lot of time. I think mm. it's materially under the value today, mm. and I think the you know the value is is probably somewhere closer to eleven or twelve thousand dollars per Bitcoin today. I think that will continue to expand as more users come into the network, and ultimately, I think the market cap of Bitcoin will be measured in trillions with a T, and uh, the the price will be measured. Probably not in whole bitcoins. I think we'll eventually get to the point where we're, we talk about satoshis, yeah. because there, you know so many people are going to own it. But I love your point about it's not going to displace the dollar first or the pound or the ruble. It's gonna it's going to replace the Nigerian naira or the you know Argentinian peso or you know the Venezuelan bolivar. Um, I mean, I just bought a piece of art. Um, in an auction that's made of boulevards, you know, because yeah. they're worthless. Um, and, you know, maybe someday the art will be worth something because it's kind of cool. But the the interesting thing about all of this is uh, the network is has increased every year uh, that Bitcoin's been around, right? It's been around almost 11 years, 11-year 11 birthday in January. And every year, the... The low for the year is higher than the previous low, Mm -hmm. other than 2015. We had one year where it went down a little bit. But every year for 11 years, it's been higher. And that just reflects more people using it, more wallets, more activity,
0: um, yeah i did a presentation at a gold conference recently about bitcoin and it's it's actually very steady growth when you look at all yeah. the metrics and yet the price is just this reflection of human emotion and one thing that i find frustrating is that the price is determined so much by these 100x leveraged traders short term and as you yes. say fair value could very much be around 10k right now but it's just oscillating between 6 and 14 this year and yeah. those traders are it around, but ultimately over time, it's definitely growing.
1: Look, and and again, you bring out another good point is, you know, when gold uh, was first becoming a a real investment, you know, for 5,000 years, gold has been a store of value, right? A fine man's suit in Cleopatra's time, one ounce of gold. Fine man's suit, Charles Dickens' time, ounce of gold. Fine man's suit today, Savile Row, 1,500 bucks, right about where gold is. So it's been a perfect, secure source of sound money, for 5,000 years. But when it first started to actually be used by people, it was very volatile, hugely volatile. And then they had price controls and then they lost the price controls and it got volatile again in the 70s and 80s. And you know, it's actually been pretty volatile on the downside since 2011. Mm. And and people forget that. And, and it's because why is it volatile? To your point, it's, it's controlled by people. But then what happened to gold in particular, and now I think it's happening in Bitcoin, is it can be manipulated because of the futures market and the, the commodity market. And and it has to do with the fact that in the old days, if, if I wanted to sell you an ounce of gold or a barrel of oil, I had to have that ounce of gold or barrel of oil to deliver to you. Yes. Now, I can write a contract to sell to you. And as long as we settle the contract before I have to deliver it to you, I don't know actually have to have anything. Yeah. And so what happens is you get these spikes in price around the creation of paper commodities, paper bars of gold, paper barrels of oil, paper soybeans, now paper Bitcoin. And so the fact that we adopted these derivatives faster in terms of the life cycle of Bitcoin has just exacerbated that, that volatility mm-hmm. that you described. And it's it's unfortunate in the short term, and that's why I don't trade it, right? I think of Bitcoin as a venture capital investment. I think Mm -hmm. it's a liquid venture capital investment. It's only 10 years old, right? It's younger than Amazon. And I I love comparing it to Amazon. Amazon Amazon's an interesting case study, right? How many people bought Amazon on the IPO in 1998 and hold it today? I've counted. There are three, Jeff and his mom and dad. That's it. And I'm not making up the part about his mom and dad. They still do. And they're rich. So those three. Now, why did they do that? Well, because they believed in it. But everyone else saw the volatility. And every year that Amazon has existed, every single one, including this year, it's had a double-digit decline. The average is 31%, mm. twice down more than 90%. Yeah. So that's just a lot of volatility. But people forget that because it's gone up a lot recently. And people just say, oh, look how great it is. You know, the fangs are great.
0: And people can't – the average person – can't handle making a lot of money. I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but they will get shaken out. They're not used to 10X or 100X investment. I know a lot of people that bought Bitcoin at $1 and sold it at $2 when they doubled their money. So when when I say Bitcoin's going to 100,000 in the next five years, people think, oh, I'm going to be rich if that happens. But so many people will get shaken out along the way of this, that, or the other. But I I did want to rewind quickly to your point about gold because I had that as one of my talking points. And recently we saw backed come out with these non-backed cash mm-hmm. settled, and that just goes against their entire ethos. I can't believe there's not more of an uproar in the community, but what degree do you believe that this is happening? When we see someone like uh, the Swiss National Bank, they're just printing yep. money out of thin air to buy $100 billion of Apple stock. I think the same thing is happening. These guys that have got endless deep pockets, they can just print whatever money they want to short gold and silver and, and maybe Bitcoin to try and cap the Oh, price. no
1: question. Look, there, there's no question at all i mean let, let's go back to gold and you know people say oh this guy's a conspiracy theorist no i, I just deal in, in facts um so the facts are this right the gld the etf for gold was held up for many years mm-hmm. why was it held up it's interesting when you actually explore the facts at the time there was this little bank in america called jp morgan that happened to be short a whole lot of gold i mean a whole lot of gold And, you know, gold prices were stuck under $400 for a long time, you know, and and then suddenly um, gold prices started to go up 400 to 500 to 600 to 800. Well, why was that? It was right around the time that GLD was approved. Well, why was it approved? Well, now suddenly somebody had to be the other side of J.P. Morgan Shorts because they were found out to be naked short when they mm-hmm. went through the financial crisis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, it was interesting, right? I think the same thing happens with Bitcoin, is who doesn't want Bitcoin to exist? Financial, financial institutions. Bit, or JP Morgan again, you know, JP Morgan, right? Jamie Dimon calls it a fraud, yet he's got a whole team working on it. Well, why does he call it a fraud? Because look, if you think about, if I have a Bitcoin, I mean, if I have a dollar and I want to send it to you, um, you have to have a bank account. I have to have a bank account. We have to pay fees. We have to pay a big fee to transfer that across the international borders because the Rothschilds get a cut of it from a treaty from like 400 years ago. Cause that's to go with the BIS. So you had all these things that make banks really profitable. Mm. And, but if I have a Bitcoin, I want to send it to you. You don't need a bank account. I don't need a bank account. We're not going to pay a big fee. Don't need a middleman. BIS doesn't get paid. They hate this stuff. Mm. So, and then, you know, uh, big Warren Buffett gets on and says, oh, it's, it's like rat poison squared. I was joking. how do you know what rat poison tastes like, Warren, unless you're a rat? But worse, he got his partner, Charlie Munger, who says it's like trading in harvested dead baby brains. I'm like, WTF, Charlie? Seriously? Baby brains? Mm-hmm. Come on. Well, why do they say these crazy things? Well, because 46% of Berkshire Hathaway is financial services. So they don't want this to happen. And there is no question. Absolutely zero question. And you can look at the data that there are large institutions that can generate cash very effectively. You know, banks can borrow from the Fed and they can do with it what they want. Sometimes they buy treasury, sometimes they lever up that trade. Here's a crazy thought How many negative trading days did JP Morgan have in 2018? Oh, that would be zero. How is that possible? How does any trader have zero trading days? Mm. It's impossible unless you're not taking any risk. So borrowing from the government to buy government bonds is a riskless trade. And if you can lever that 12 times, it's a really good business. Mm. Now on the other side, if you decide to help the government out in financing their deficit by buying their bonds, that probably you know gives you some benefits. Or if you're the Swiss National Bank and you do what's called stealth QE, right, which is you actually help the US because the US Fed can't buy stock, yeah. Right. It's against the law. That's to me like like tax deform over here. Right. Why did we cut corporate taxes? Why did we cut Apple's taxes and give them free money when they already had lots of money? Well, because they promised to buy back stock. And when you buy back stock, Warren Buffett gets rich. So it's all a very good thing for the top of the food chain, the people who benefit from asset price inflation. It's really bad for the average person. You know, 49 percent of people in America don't own stock. So it's bad for them. But, you know, manipulation of gold price, absolutely going on. Manipulation of silver price, absolutely going on. Manipulation of Bitcoin price, absolutely going on. Now, I don't think it's as big as the gold manipulation, just because the market's not as mature. Mm. And the volumes and backed would say that there's not that much going on relative to, like, if you look at the data in the gold market, it's really clear.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I've I've read a lot about this as well and something I'll probably talk about more and more on the channel because I can't believe how quickly Bitcoin is going down that path. But I guess the next question on everyone's lips is, well, how can Bitcoin win? And I know I've got my theories around twenty-four hour a day trading at really global real demand. It's very hard for the smoke and mirrors to come up in in that world if there's real demand. And then we see things like China and Russia, others now hoarding gold. If there's real, real demand for all this Bitcoin, I think it's so hard to be pushing down the price if there's all this real money actually going in and inflating the real market cap.
1: Look, sound money will always displace bad money, always. And you see it in, you know, what I call the dictator playbook, you know, places like Zimbabwe or Venezuela or Argentina. Um, once those currencies start to hyperinflate, what happens? People flee those currencies. They used to go to the dollar. Then some started to dabble in the renminbi or the ruble. Um, But now they go to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the price of local Bitcoins in Argentina in 2018, there was no bear market. You would have thought there was a wild bull market in Bitcoin because local Bitcoin prices went up every single month. Volumes expanded. So... um, real money, sound money. And I, I did this presentation on, on kind of history of money, and, and it's actually fascinating, right? If you go back in history, you know, money is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, most of life was was around barter and, and exchange of goods and services. And it was only recently, like in the last, you know, 1,100 years or so, where we really started using money. And money's changed forms, and it's gone from, you know, hard currency-backed like gold doubloons or silver um, pieces or uh, you know the copper coin back you know actually you can go back twenty six hundred years to the copper coin, um, but that wasn't paper money, you know paper money was created in eight hundred in China and then kind of fell out of favor and then came back around eleven hundred or so uh, in europe and you know Holland had the dollar or the dollar, and then we created the dollar in the u s and the crazy thing is there were seven hundred and seventy five paper currencies fiat currencies Mm -hmm. issued in the history of mankind and three quarters of them actually technically 73 percent of them no longer exist Uh, the oldest today is the pound sterling that's about 371 years old or 381 i forget um when it was originally minted uh one pound note would buy you one pound of sterling silver hence the name today take you 174 pounds of silver to buy that same note, mm. that's how devalued that piece of, you know, garbage piece of paper is. Mm. Same thing with the dollar, right? From 1776 to 1913, a dollar was worth a dollar, and then John D. Rockefeller's father-in-law created the, you know, Federal Reserve Bank in cahoots with J.P. Morgan, and since then, you know, Jay Leno has a joke that Congress was talking about uh, exchanging the uh, dollar bill for a coin. Well, they already have; it's called a nickel. So you know, it's worth five cents today. And that is a theft from the lower class and the middle class in the form of taxation. Inflation is a form of taxation, which is Mm. theft. And that is really good for the people at the top of the food chain. And then what happens over time is that inflation starts to really get rampant. Then the dictators get all the assets and then they really want to inflate And the best example of that is, is whenever your stock market is the best performing stock market in the world, you better look around and see if it's too good to be true, right? Zimbabwe, best performing stock market, 2005,
2: 2006. Then
1: it was a bad place to be. Venezuela, last two years, best performing stock market in the world. But you didn't want to own any Zimbabwe, I mean, Venezuelan stocks, unless you were Maduro, um, because you owned all the assets.
0: Yeah, I've done some videos on this just recently about the inflation and real inflation and the stealth tax and whatnot. So that kind of leads me to my next question about where global markets are going. And I think we're at this crossroads, particularly in places like the US and Australia, where we're not quite negative yet. And in Australia, they're starting to talk about that in QE. And I think naturally, markets need to unwind. We need to pay down debt. Demographics are against us. That's just the natural path for things to go. But I think central banks are going to do everything they can to print more money, drop rates, and of course. Ma- maybe stocks keep going up. Maybe the Aussie housing bubble gets twice as big. I just think we shouldn't be in this. It's going to crash mindset because anything's possible. But the breaking point is this inequality and civil unrest we see, and people being aware of these issues.
1: Yeah, look, you're you're exactly right, and and uh, and I'm absolutely in the camp, and have been in the camp for you know a couple of years now that. Uh, you know, I've actually written extensively about this, that I, I, I studied history and I, and I looked and I said, look, I, I think this is exactly like the 1920s, um, where we had this, you know, big inflation, uh, after world war one, of uh, financial assets around the world, everybody was partying, like it was 1929. And then we had a series of missteps. Um, interestingly, we were talking about trade wars and tariffs, and banning immigration, we actually picked up uh, uh, immigrants, uh, Mexican immigrants in the United States, and marched them physically, forcefully back to Mexico. Some of them were actually American citizens, crazy, half a million people.
2: Mm.
1: So all the things that we're talking about now were going on back in the early 30s. And then we had this this genius plan of Smoot and Hawley to create a trade war. And what what people who start trade wars don't understand is that other countries will fight back. And so U.S. exports declined 35%. The dollar collapsed. They uh, had to issue the executive order making gold illegal, had to devalue the currency 35% overnight Mm. to restart and bail themselves out of the massive debt bubble. And that turned a garden variety recession into the Great Depression.
2: Mm. And
1: so that took, you know, 70 plus years to recover from. And you know, now we're going through the same process of reinflating that type of bubble, and you're exactly right. You know, I'm I'm on record saying, look, I thought that, that a 29 repeat would be like 2,800 in the in the Dow, and uh, I mean I mean the S and P, and that that would crescendo sometime around you know Trump uh, taking office, um, just like Hoover did. They called it the Welcome to Hooverville, mm-hmm. um, but then when they did this tax deformance that they were going to cut corporate taxes they said whoa whoa, whoa, whoa! that is going to be massively stimulative so now we're going to be more bubble-esque like 2000 and uh 2000 could take us to this this really cathartic bubble of like 3400 mm. and you know what you're talking about which i actually uh, agree with and i don't know if you you've ever talked to grant williams but you know grant does a great presentation on this where if you look at the S&P, and you can do the same thing with the Aussie stock market, if you do the S&P divided by gold, in you know 2000, it was a big bubble, needed to crash. And it went way down, then it came back, and that ratio got just about back to the same level, and then it needed to crash again.
2: Mm.
1: Well, since then, the stock market is way up, looks like a bubble, but stocks divided by gold is not a bubble. So to your point, with, this bubble could run much longer than any of us think. Now, when it eventually crashes then it'll be really catastrophic, but I agree that um look, if you back a dog into a corner, they will bite and scratch and and do whatever it takes to survive. And uh I think that's where the central banks are t- today and you know At the beginning of the year, I wrote something called The Cupboard is Bear Market. And I said that just like 2016, when we were on the verge of recession, markets were crashing and China pumped a trillion dollars. And, you know, trillion, nobody thinks about a trillion anymore. But a trillion is a dollar every second for 31,710 years. That's a lot of money. Mm. Okay, that's just one. So China printed a trillion bucks and they reflated the world economy. They bought up a lot of oil futures. They bought commodity futures like copper and iron ore and and everything reflated. Now everyone thinks they're going to do that again and everybody's cutting interest rates but global liquidity actually isn't increasing as much as it did in 16 because the coverage is bare, right? People don't have the same capacity at the central bank because the impact of debt is less in terms of generating new GDP. It just takes more debt to create the same amount of GDP. Yeah. So I, I don't think we're going to crash tomorrow. I I've probably been, you know, because I, I, last October, I, someone asked me you know, what what could happen to stock markets, and I said, look, global equity markets could and should crash forty percent from here. You now I said it would happen over two years. I didn't say it would happen over two months. I said, you know, between now and the middle of twenty twenty one, I think the markets will go down forty plus percent. Mm. And you know, started down quickly in Q four last year, and everything was looking pretty good for that prediction, and I thought this year would be a really crappy year. But something happened on December 24th when Manukin called in the plunge protection team. They called in the big guns. And I think the banks have been buying stock. I think the Swiss National Bank's been buying stock. I think the Bank of Japan's been buying stock. I think everybody's been buying stock. Mm-hmm. I think interest rates have been cut by the central banks. It's allowing the the banks like JP Morgan and Bank of America and, and other big banks to to help liquefy those markets. Because when you look at, again, looking at data, I like data. If you look at flows into capital markets, equity markets globally, they're actually negative, Mm -hmm. except for buybacks, uh, which are hugely positive, which is just stealth QE. But average individual investors have been net sellers. And there's a reason for that. You mentioned it, right? Demographics. I call it the killer Ds, right? We have bad demographics, we have too much debt, and we have deflation. Those three things are not going away. Mm. Interest rates are going to be low for a very, very long time. Because every single day, 10,000 people in America turn 65. Every single day, 10,000 people turn 65 in Europe. Mm. And in Japan, they're already 65 to 85. And 65 to 85-year-old people are not productive, and they don't spend a lot. So that's where we are. And that means that the only way to get out of this dilemma is to... Issue a lot of bonds, buy back the bonds through the central bank to monetize the debt. So don't call it QE. Fine. We, don't, we won't call it QE, Jerome, but you're buying government bonds. That's mm. that's monetization of debt. So as that process goes on, what that will do is it will inflate asset values, particularly real estate and stocks. That'll be really good for the elite. It'll be really good for leveraged speculators, really crappy for the average person and to your point, what fixes it? Revolution, and that's when revolutions happen. Actually,
0: yeah. And uh, I know in Australia they're talking about pushing back their retirement age to seventy as well. But uh, the, the final point I wanted to ask you was: what if gold and Bitcoin is, is working too well? It get you know, Bitcoins mm-hmm. at one hundred thousand, golds at five thousand, and people have got this very clear idea now that these things are finite. Everything else is fiat and being printed more of. Yep. Governments make it illegal? do we have so much pushback and there's a lot of rich players with deep pockets in the crypto space these days? do you think you know we can stop that or how how does that scenario play out
1: uh, look it, it's it's a great thought, very insightful again and a couple of things one, you know we all know that governments can't stop this right governments can't stop a decentralized Thing. That's that's the beauty of it, right? Mm. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was summoned to Washington to defend Libra, and the joke was the CEO of Bitcoin didn't return the summons, yeah. so no one showed up. And you know, you can say, oh, well, they'll just ban the the onboard rails. Fine, then people will go elsewhere, right? You know, they banned crypto exchanges in China. What happened? They sprung up in Korea and Japan, and Chinese people, you know, use VPNs to go buy it there. Um, they could ban. You know, conversion of fiat into crypto through your credit card. Yeah. So then people use their bank account. Oh, they could ban the bank account. Well, then people will turn it into gold and then they'll barter the gold in a Swiss account and then they'll turn it into Swissies and, and do it that way. I don't know. I mean, human beings are very creative. And I said, sound money will always push out unsound money. Now, to your, again, insightful point, what happens if it becomes so prevalent and so adopted that these big governments start to lose power. Everyone thinks that'll be anarchy and that'll be horrible. I'm actually going to go the opposite way. I'm going to go less Mad Max and more Nirvana. Mm -hmm. I think a global borderless, true global village could actually be pretty cool. I think it could be really interesting. I think we're, we're not as different as most people think. Um, I think there are certainly differences and religious differences are probably the toughest ones to deal with. But I think, you know, from an ethical and cultural and, you know, we all want to have good lives for our families. We all want to be safe and secure. You know, we all want to respect rule of law by and large. Um, So I think it could be a really interesting dynamic that we look and have. Wait, we could have a 24-7 global market. We could have a single global borderless currency that's decentralized, that's not controlled by any party who's getting rich at my expense. I'm sovereign, self-sovereign in that I'm my own bank and I can choose to opt out of this fiat destruction system. Hmm. That actually all sounds pretty good to me. Now, I'm not a Pollyanna thinking it's going to be perfect, but I actually don't think it has to um, be this, this all-out global war um, from the governments fighting against it. I, I Look, whoever goes digital first, I think wins, right? If it's China, they win. If it's the U.S., they win. If it's Russia, they win. Because what's going to happen is the digital currency, not a cryptocurrency, a digital currency, not decentralized, centralized, but digital, what that does is it forces the U.S. hegemony to end, mm because U.S. hegemony was created in 1974. We went off the gold standard. We cut a deal with the Saudis, said, we'll protect you. Saudis, sorry, Saudis. Uh, I got to pronounce it right. And we cut a deal and we said, we'll protect you, but you have to price all oil transactions around the world in dollars, Mm. which meant that 8% of global trade is from the U.S., but 60% of global trade settles in dollars. That will go away if there is a digital liquid version of some currency that people can transact in. Mm. Now, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. And Bitcoin has the potential to be one of those solutions. It won't be the only solution, but you're already seeing it. People are doing borderless transactions in Bitcoin, and it will continue. And there will probably be some other payment mechanisms. I'm I'm a big fan of what's going to happen with the Lightning Network. We'll have stacked protocols, just like the Internet, You know, Visa, MasterCard, right? I do a Visa card transaction. It settles really quickly, but it actually doesn't settle. They don't take the money out of my bank Mm. account for a month. So they batch all the transactions and they settle up at the end of the month. I think the Mm. same thing will happen so that the core Bitcoin blockchain can stay secure, right? Hundreds of millions of transactions, not one fraudulent transaction in 11 years. Most secure computing network on the planet, bar none. That's good.
0: So, I, I think uh, all that's left in that utopia is for Pompe's aliens to come down, Mark, and maybe that will solve the religion uh, issue you mentioned. Oh,
1: that would be awesome! Uh, I, look, I, I wish I, I, I do. I that is that is one thing that that does scare me a little bit because I think at the end, or at the beginning, all of us do have, I think, similar beliefs, like do unto others, mm-hmm. golden rule. But I do think interpretations across religions have historically tended to lead to conflict yeah. and I'm not again I'm not naive enough to say that that's going to immediately go away but I do like the idea of of the aliens maybe sniffing <laughs> out a little piece of DNA to make us uh, a little more tolerant
0: <laughs> well uh, I think we'll leave it there otherwise we're opening up a whole nother rabbit hole but uh, it's been fantastic wow. I'll put all yeah, the links thanks. to follow all your guys work um, but any final thoughts for people at home
1: no look I, I just I really enjoy it, and I guess my only final thought is is here we were talking about this idea of, of a global village. And, and here we are sitting on opposite sides of the world, having a conversation about some of the most important topics in the world. Um, and, and really exchanging different points of view and, and, uh, having a great conversation. And I I just love that. And what I really love is that that you also speak English, although you sound way better than I do. If I could just have your accent, I'd sound so much smarter, but, (laughs) um, I just love that. And and I love what someone will do tomorrow is they'll, you know, they'll take this and they'll translate it in another language, you know, go into Spanish or mm. go into Arabic or something. And, and that is how we make change, right? It's how we, we further the adoption of these ideas. And, and you get people to say, wait a minute, it's technology. This isn't some magic internet money. This is just a technological evolution that's happened for 70 years. Oh, I can get behind that. That's not that scary. Yeah, I'll try it. So yeah hopefully that's where we end up
0: and i think you know just to your point being able to get someone like yourself on the channel that says so much about this space and and yourself personally as well but that just would never happen in the world of stocks and corporations and the jamie diamonds of the world that live in their ivory towers so i think it's one of the best things about the space that we can do this
1: i second that emotion one of my hashtags second that emotion And, and again thanks for having me really enjoyed spending time together i love all the prep you did and you know nothing better than a then a a good discussion with someone who's done their homework because it uh, makes the conversation really flow.